Welcome back to the Utah Shakespeare Festival's Play On podcast. I'm your host, Frank Hunts. Today we sit down with Sam Ashdown and Larry Bull, who play father and son, King Henry IV and Prince Hal, in this season's production of Henry IV Part II. In addition to playing Prince Hal this season, Sam can also be seen as Lucencio in The Taming of the Shrew and the King of France in King Lear. This is Sam's second season at the festival. Last year, he played John Willoughby in Sense and Sensibility and Prince Henry in Henry IV Part I. He's performed with numerous other theater companies such as Northlight Theater, Writers Theater, Timeline Theater Company, Montana Shakespeare in the Parks, and Chicago Shakespeare Theater. Larry joins Utah Shakespeare Festival in the same role he has played for three seasons now. In 2013, he played Henry Bolingbrook in Richard II, and last season and this season in Henry IV Part I, and in Henry IV Part II, he plays King Henry. This season he can also be seen as Baron Gottfried von Swieten in Amadeus and the Earl of Kent in King Lear. In earlier seasons at Utah Shakespeare Festival, you might remember Larry as Sir John Middleton in Sense and Sensibility, Juror Number 1 in Twelve Angry Men, and Lord Astor in Peter and the Starcatcher. Larry performed in the Coast of Utopia on Broadway, and regionally he has performed with Actors Theatre of Louisville, Denver Center Theatre, Merrimack Repertory, Kennedy Center, Alabama Shakespeare Festival, Pennsylvania Shakespeare, and many more. Good morning. It's great to have the two of you with us here, Sam and Larry. Um, would love to just start off and talk a little bit about how you ended up at Utah Shakespeare Festival. What brought you here? Well, I just I'd been auditioning in Chicago. I was living in Chicago at the time, and I auditioned for Brian and David a couple times, and then um, actually didn't audition the year that I ended up coming out here last year. <laughs> uh, but um, yeah, I just got a phone call from Brian, and he I was in Chicago, and he said. We're looking for uh, a, a guy to play Hal. Um, it's going to be a three-summer thing. We're looking at this to, to track through the, the histories. Um, could you send in an audition tape? So I filmed it in my Chicago apartment and sent it, sent it in. And, uh, yeah, got the job from that. I think sometimes people have the assumption that you audition once and you get hired and everything is yeah hunky-dory, but it doesn't work that way. Yeah, not always. Um, not often, I not don't often, think. Yeah. <laughs> no. Usually, yeah. I mean, I at least auditioned, I think, three three times um, prior. And Brian had come had just been in Chicago and seen a show I was in with an actor who had been out here, Jeb Burris. So we had uh, said hi briefly. So. Um, I started working here in 93, went through a similar process. I was... Uh, living in Chicago, I went through the audition process um, for the first time, I think. Uh, I had heard about Utah Shakes and went in for it and got a job for the summer, came out as a non-equity actor, and um, did that two summers in a row. And it was during that time that I met Brian. Um, he was either a student at SUU or had just gotten out of SUU and was um, playing Costard in uh, Love's Labors, among other things. And then came back during the summer of 95, and that's when I met uh, David Ivers. And when I turned equity in 94, I was told to go away and get more experience and come back. That they could go away. You know, I was 26, and uh, they, they had a lot of other people my age that they could use for a lot less money. And, you know, so uh, I went away. And um, years later, uh, 2008, um, I bumped into David Ivers in Denver. And... Um, 
I, I wound up working Christmas shows there for a couple of years in a row. He was in uh, one production of Christmas Carol that I was in, played Jacob Marley, and I was playing Christmas Present. And it was around that time that Fred and, and uh, Scott showed up in Denver. And I thought, what's going on here? Because I knew <laughs> David was very, you know, obviously very active. He and Brian still very active with Utah Shakes, and David was directing. And, um, and then it was soon after that I learned that they were going to be uh, co-artistic directors of the festival. And I congratulated David via email or a phone call, and he said, yeah, we got to get you on this stage. Uh, we got to get you uh, to Utah. And I thought, well, that would be great if it happens. Um, and then it was a few years after that that I got a phone call from David. I was uh, working at the Humana Festival at Actors Theatre of Louisville and got a phone call when I was at the gym. And uh, couldn't believe it, you know, because it was out of the blue. And, um, and that's when I started back here again in 2013. And that was when you did... Um, Richard II and yeah, some other things. The offer that David gave me over the phone was Lord Astor in Peter and the Starcatcher and the juror, uh, juror one in Twelve Angry Men and something in Richard II. We're not sure what yet. <laughs> and I didn't know what it was until I got here. And I was at the hamburger and hot dog welcome wagon and saw Brian uh, for the first time in years. And he said, oh, yeah, and uh, I want to play Bolingbroke. <laughs> I said, I'm sorry, what? I was expecting Bishop of Carlisle or, you know, yeah. a nice speech and, and ease myself in. And uh, I was really, really surprised and pleased. And, you know, um, so that's, yeah, that was my entree back into Utah Shakes. So you've been playing Henry the Fourth in various forms for three seasons now, and you've been playing Prince Hal for two. Mm-hmm. What's it like to live with these characters over not just an extended period of their lives, but a fairly extended period of your professional lives as well. It's a huge challenge, I think. Um, We were talking about this the other day uh, with the students that Larry Weitzel and Ann Tully worked with. Um, John Aline and I were talking. and The idea of doing something... John had played has played Falstaff 11 times, so he has a wealth of experience of repetition. And that's something that... I don't have with Henry. So there's an immersive, I hope, an immersive quality of getting into the role each time. And it's fascinating to follow that, the arc of that character forward. Whereas I think in other situations, I mean, it, it just happens that uh, David and Brian are interested in completing the canon in order, the history's in order. And I think that's a, I know there's a number of theaters who are doing that, or doing compressed versions of part one and part two, mm-hmm. and maybe not Henry uh, V. But the idea of going from one to the next in order, I think, I'm, I think it's, for me, it's, it's got to be a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Um, uh, so a, a, a great challenge. It's always a learning experience when I get up on stage, when I look at the text, working um, with the ensemble and, and hearing and learning from them um, and seeing what this character goes through, trying to experience it live on stage every time from, from who he was. figured it out the other night. Uh, he would have been 33 in real time uh, during the events of Richard II and dying at 47 uh, during the events of part two. 
and the, 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 the trajectory that, that, you know, from being, from being um, displaced, uh, feeling um, displaced and, and uh, abandoned by his country uh, and his king, to gaining power, and then the, the consequences of the gain of that power and what his reign was like during all that time and his relationship with his family and his son. Um, it's fascinating. How about you, Sam? Yeah, it's been cool. It's been, uh, there's, uh, being able to do the show last summer um, and then step away from it and then, uh, uh, I mean, be wor- having been working on part two now for I don't know, six months, sort of, mm-hmm. you know, letting it sit and then picking it up again. There's a lot that sort of ferments. There's a lot that seeps in uh, without even working on it. Just it's just you. I feel like sort of in the room with you <laughs> in your daily life, and that's for me a lot of times the most valuable stuff is just sitting with it and letting it, it seep in. And there's tons of stuff in part two that is directly informed by part one. Um, I mean, I'm on stage for such a short amount of time with Falstaff, but we have this history of part one together. We have this, these memories of part one and to have it, to have lived that last summer is so helpful. Just makes such a difference. And the same with, with us and, uh, Hal and, and Henry and same with Hal and Poins and, uh, even seeing Falstaff's journey with where he's at in part two, it's all informed by part one. Um, which I think we just sort of take for granted. We just, we know it and we got to do it. So it's just there for us. Mm-hmm. So it's a, I think it's a gift for us. And hopefully the audience also, if they saw part one, can track that as well. And it's there for them. Even if they've forgotten some of it, it's, it's great. It's sort of just still a memory that is in the room with us. Well, even in the moment, like in the, in the tavern scene, where quickly sees Hal for the first time in this play, there's this there's this memory attached yeah. to it and this loving affection. And yeah, she even refers to like it'll be like old times, and yeah. there's something about wanting to hold on to that 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 seems kind of present in part two. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think we're really fortunate in the consistency of casting and also in the production, um, the design, going out on stage and hearing Joe Payne's music, hearing the themes that you know. He explored last summer being reflected in this this summer's, you know, refreshed. Yeah. Um, the tavern is the tavern, you know, the set is the same, so we're in the same place. Um, there's a bit of a, a design difference between Richard II and parts one and parts two, because Richard II was done at the Randall, and Henry Warnitz directed it, but there's also a consistency in casting. A lot of the same people who were in that are in... Um, we're either in part one uh, in different roles, and in part two, we've got Chris Ellis uh, back in the story again after he was in Richard, Richard II. Yeah. So looking around and seeing familiar faces, another one is Peter Sham, who I've never, I haven't worked with since 93 or 94, but he was here when I was first here. So huh. hearing his voice, looking around his rumor and saying, and here's Northumberland, and seeing his familiar presence come out on the upper, it's just, you know, there's nothing can replace that. You know, this is this is stuff that goes back twenty odd years. <laughs> that's very you know, cool. In, in addition with the relationship with Brian and David, and, and uh, you know, so that's, but yeah, and and the relationship with there's a shorthand I think that's established uh, working with the same people, and that's definitely I think true working with with Sam as uh, in the father son 
relationship. We know where we can go. There's a trust there. I hope. Yeah. I think. Yeah. Um, we've got each other's back, and and so a lot of that stuff that I think would normally get have to get around and wade through in other rehearsal processes, we just were able to jump in. It's like, okay, it's yeah. you and me. This is the scene. We know the dynamics. We know the story. Let's get in there. You know. Wonderful Great feeling. So this is Henry the Fourth Part Two is. I think, without a doubt, the lesser known of this tetralogy of plays. People know Richard II. Um, I think a lot of people have great affection for Richard II because the verse is just amazing. Um, Henry IV, Part One is a favorite of others. Henry V is certainly a favorite as well. And so I'm wondering if first you can just sort of catch folks up on where we are at at the beginning of this play. What's been happening? How, how have we landed in a part two, because it, you know, in some in some worlds and in worlds of some theaters, when they produce this, they skip right over part two and they do Henry Four Part One, Henry the Fifth. Um, where are we at at the beginning of this play? Great question. Yeah, um, in term uh, in terms of timeline, we're right uh, we're right at the end of part one. We pick up and um, with part two, uh, we have messengers running from the Battle of Shrewsbury. To start the to, to in the second scene of the play, mm-hmm. um, but in terms of the play, the country is in a different place than it was in part one, I think, and it's in a uh, it's 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 diseased. It's um, uh, the country itself is diseased with civil war, and the individuals are diseased. Henry's King Henry's getting worse. Um, Falstaff is sick. Um, he has some form of pox or gout or something. <laughs> Um, in addition to other things. In addition to other things, probably. Uh, Hal is in recovery. Uh, yeah. Yeah, Hal is beat up. He's beat got... Up from the war, from the battle. Uh, yeah. Has some cracked ribs and uh, the um, wound on his face. And so the country's in this, yeah, injured, diseased, uh, uh, unhealthy unhealthy place. There seems to be sort of a Sis- Sisyphusian nature to the reign of, of Henry IV uh, in regards to rebellion. Uh, he says in part two, um, um, it seemed to me but as an honor, the crown, but as an honor snatched with boisterous hand and there were many living to upbraid my gain of it with their assistances, their rebellions. So all through his reign, there's been rebellion after rebellion trying to knock him off the throne, which they feel, and perhaps rightly so, he gained uh, illegitimately um, through force and not by uh, divine right of kings. Um, and so that's been the nature of his reign and also the nature of the country for so long. And there's, there's an idea, I think, in his language that once this rebellion is over, then we can get on to the real business at hand, which is a pilgrimage to the Holy Land, which is where he gained his glory as a young man. And I think he's He's yearning to get that back. And um, Shakespeare draws an excellent parallel between the state of the state and the state of the ruling body in that nothing is really being achieved except the batting away of rebellion after rebellion after rebellion. Right. And, it's, and it's, as Hal says in part two, it's got his, it's, it's got its claws in Henry and uh, it's, it's eating away at not only his soul, but also his, his physical 
self. Yeah. Um, so, Larry, in the historical record, it seems like there's quite a bit of question about what killed Henry mm. in in the end. Um, and in and in Shakespeare, there seems to be both the the physical ailments, but also this kind of weighing on his psyche that you're talking about. Um, as as you've approached this character, how much of how much of Henry's um, end do you feel is in relation to what's going on around him with the politics and 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 how that's weighing on you versus physical ailments or? Well, he's not sleeping well in part two. Um, I think I think there's so much on his mind all the time and. In addition to that, there's the stress of not knowing whether his, his next in line, his son Hal, is going to be any sort of proper king because he spends, as far as Henry is concerned, all of his time with ne'er-do-wells in the stews and, the, uh, and in, the, in the pubs and the alleyways of Eastcheap, um, hanging out with, with ruffians. Um, so there's a lot of worry, there's a lot of concern. I, I think it's a, I think it's a large part. He goes from, in Richard II, being a man of, of confidence and, and uh, sure-footed forward action. As soon as Richard II dies, there's the seed, we see the seed of doubt creep in. And in fact, he has a speech about his doubts about Hal in Richard II as well. He asks where his son is, and he's told by Hotspur, actually, that his son <laughs> is in the brothels. Yeah. Uh, and so we see this worry set in very early. Part one, uh, he's, he's a bit manic. He's, uh, he's, he's becoming, I don't know if paranoid is the right word, but he's, he's becoming suspicious, doubtful. Uh, we see a real dark side start to creep in that has to do with uh, his psyche and how this stuff is weighing on him. So I think absolutely the... Uh, at least in, I mean, Shakespeare does a great job of, of, of imitating life uh, by, by drawing these parallels. Uh, but the illness and the worry are one in, in, in part two, I think. Yeah, I've got this line to, to uh, the king uh, where I say, you know, I'm talking about the crown, and I say, the care on thee depending hath fed upon the body of my father. There's this sense of, what the crown does to the person that has to wear it, that constant worry, that constant managing, and so much uh, effort is spent in keeping it that even doing doing something small with it uh, is almost impossible. Moving the country in a direction is so difficult because it's all about just maintaining this, this, uh, this honor. Especially without an understanding of the people of the country, which Hal has, and Henry does not. Henry, uh, I think, talks about um, the, the people of England in a, in a much different way than, than Hal does. He doesn't know them the way that Hal does. Yeah. And um, I think that makes for a more successful reign in the end, uh, potentially. Great. Um, talk about the father-son relationship here in, in this play, not just the Henry Howe relationship, but we have this theme of fathers and sons throughout Henry IV Part One and Part Two, with Hotspur and Northumberland and Henry and um, and Falstaff and Hal and and just talk a little bit about that and where we where we sort of land with that in this play. Yeah, it's definitely part, they're both plays about fathers and sons. Um, 
I mean, it's an amazing. It's amazing because it's it's such a big play. It deals with a nation and civil war and battles and and politics, and then it's it's very intimate and personal at the same time. I mean, I think that's the beauty of it is it explores all these different aspects of of um, of life. Yeah, uh, I, mean, I think I think that it, the father son relationship is is such a contemporary, relatable thing for everyone, I think, now. Yeah, yeah there's it, nothing ancient about the nature of this relationship. It is, uh, <laughs> right. In fact, I've had a few people come up and say, oh, you know, you know what that's like to have that <laughs> relationship, you know, that conversation. Yeah. Right. This idea of, you know, um, the dad that has built this thing for for his, his family has, 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 um, has grasped sort of the highest the highest honor has the crown wants to leave it to his son um and yeah i think hal i mean hal knows he's going to have to be king and he says it's very interesting because he says it right in the beginning of part one what he plans to do you know why he's doing what he's doing uh and what he hopes will happen what he believes will happen but there is this discord between the two of them and the way they look at majesty i mean i think the part one and part two is also this battle with how you approach the crown, what you're going to do with it, how you're going to, what sort of king you're going to be, um, and how you can even be a king, what that means to be a king. How can one man lead a country where everyone's lives are in his hands, and how can someone do that, and how how can you be authentic to yourself and still do that thing? Yeah, what's the method of approach? Yeah. For Henry, of course, for Bolingbroke, it was very much about at least on the surface, the, the regaining of his rights. And he came from a huge... John of Gaunt, his father, was an extremely, extremely wealthy and powerful man. And if I'm correct, Henry IV was an only child whose mother died very young. So he grew up in a man's world uh, with an expectation of responsibility that was thrust upon him at a very early age um, with a cousin who was a king. Uh, so, you know, Richard II. Uh, so, right from the get-go, he was in the thick of it. And I think owned it beautifully as he was growing up. He, he, he met all these challenges as he was growing up. So the idea of having a son who is not the, the stamp of himself um, is extremely distressing. And we, we see a lot of that in part one, that all of this, all of this work that's been going into... Uh, um, uh, keeping the keeping the um, the rain um, going and keeping the rebellions at bay, um, and the idea of having a thoughtless child—not only a thoughtless child, but a thoughtless heir to the very crown—is um, extremely distressing, and that comes out in part one, um, and then of course in part two, the the, the immediacy, knowing uh, the illness that is going to kill him uh, is is advancing. Um, there's, there's uh, I think, panic. There's um, an immediacy to it. It's got to be, ha- it's got to be done. You know, there's no time. There's no time anymore. You've got to step up. Yeah. There's also some interesting stuff about when Henry was banished, that Hal stayed with Richard II. Yes. And they actually grew. They grew very close. Yeah, yeah. close. And so there's this, there's a lot of stuff in between Hal and his dad. There's so many things. And Hal, of course, is very close to Falstaff. Yeah. So that's that's another. Th- and and there's hurt as well that 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 creeps out in a at the end of a 
speech during the father-son scene in part one um, that uh, escapes Henry un, un, unwanted, this unwanted moment of uh, wounded, you know, moment of being wounded and hurt by this, by Hal's actions. And then he channels it into, you've got to step up and you've got to be a part of this rebellion. You know, you've got to be a, yeah. help me with your rebellion. You've got to lead the charge down into Shrewsbury. Yeah. Yeah, so the, the balance between the personal and the and the political, as always. Yeah. And there is this, immediate, there is this immediacy. There is this, uh, the clock is running out in all of our scenes. So there's not... There's yeah, not, whether it's a battle or it's, it's death and you're going to... The, yeah. They don't have the time to really get on the same page it's almost like they just have to jump over it and make peace with where they're both at yeah the way we stage it i think the way brian staged it is beautiful where the crown is is the thing that's between us for most of the scene um in the bedchamber, and then finally we set it down and it becomes about a father and son and we end up sitting next to the bed and just looking at it and i love that idea of a dad who's dying a son who's about to be king looking at the crown and talking about it and saying, the dad saying, this is what it was to me. This is what I hope it's going to be for you. And having Hal just said, alone in the bedchamber, what he thinks of the crown um, when he talks about majesty. Um, yeah, and, and Hal like, recognizing too in that beautiful speech where, you know, about arguing, arguing and, and uh, taking on the crown. Right. That is a, it is a person waster. It is a, you know, yeah, a lot like what Tolkien writes about the ring. You know, it'll it'll eat you alive. It'll eat you alive for all that power. Right. Or if you look at photos of, you know, the, Abraham Lincoln over the course of the the Civil oh, yeah. War, you see from the beginning to the end, it's just like it's when he's present away, the yeah, graying and the yeah, yeah, remarkable. So, Sam, I'm, I I want to ask you about um, why you think Hal ultimately decides chooses the path that he goes down to sort of return to his father to ultimately reject Falstaff because it's not it doesn't seem inevitable from from part one to part two that this is going to be the path that this prince decides to take mm -hmm. yeah um I don't know if it's inevitable um I do I think that the decision the decision to turn away from Falstaff yeah to banish him and to step up and and do what his father has asked him to do to be to be this leader to be a to be a worthy king yeah i i think that it comes from a love of the people of the country a real genuine love hmm. um of sort of what i think is sort of the children of the country the, the future of the country and that becoming the most important thing and i think it's a it's not perfect and it's not easy um but what's good for the country and what's going to be what's going to protect them um, becomes the most important thing. And there's no room for uh, Falstaff. There's no room for uh, his his followers. It would be bad for the people, and it would hurt them. Um, so I think it becomes this love story in a way between. Um, a king in his country, and and I think it is a sacrifice to give up what he would want in his own life, where he would like to be, what he who he would like to be with, how he would like to be. Um, it's a sacrifice, um, but it comes from a love, and so I don't think it's 
I think it's um, it's a willing sacrifice because he knows that he can lead the country out of this um, yeah this this stagnant treading water diseased civil ward state and he can he can move it somewhere um, and I think like in this moment he's the one that can do it he is the one person that can do it and so he does hmm. well not to put you on the spot but what are you looking forward to? with Henry V, if you've gotten that far in thinking about it? Um, <laughs> I, I, I don't know. Um, I, I've looked at, at it a little bit, but um, right now <laughs> my mind's in part two. <laughs> Probably a good place I'm not, to be uh, living yeah, right now. I'm not uh, <laughs> confident enough to <laughs> start working on uh, Henry V fully yet. But yeah, I think I, I think it's, it's... I love doing part two because you get to... I, how becomes Henry V, and there's a, a moment in one of the scenes where it actually happens. He says it happened till now, and it happens in that moment. Um, yeah, so it, it's so fun to be able to do that and become that that, that part on stage. I don't know what it's going to be like to do <laughs> the full play as Henry V. Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, let, maybe let me ask you both this question then, because as I'm, as I'm sitting here, I'm sure people who are listening to this can hear it in your voices, but it's also just really interesting to watch the body language that both of you have. When you're talking about these plays, there's a degree of um, an awe, of awe and reverence and respect that the two of you obviously have for these characters, for what Shakespeare's written, and what seems to be a very obvious love for these plays. And so as you get ready to turn the corner out of Henry IV Part II, where, where, we, where we lose Henry IV and Hal becomes king, um, what, do you, what do you look back on and, and remember most fondly or, or affectionately about these plays or... or um, yeah, what are your what are your memories of these as you turn that corner? I remember being petrified at the first rehearsal of Richard II <laughs> because Henry Warnitz, David Ivers, and Brian Vaughn were all at the table. <laughs> uh, the directing are playing significant roles and looking at me and you know, and having not been at this festival for years. Um, feeling uh, encouraged and delighted and also challenged and not knowing if I was up to that challenge and wondering uh, why they would roll the dice the way they did in <laughs> casting me. Um, but being confident that exploring forward would be one of the greatest gifts of, of my career uh, to, be able to, be, to be in, in such company. Um, and I, I think I will remember what it felt like going into part one and then part two to have an actor who wasn't in part one turn to me and, and have a speech relating to me things that happened in Richard II and having a memory of that. From the, from the production in the fall of 2013. Um, and to hear lines that Hotspur says is candy courtesy and how he said this and how he said that. And having a memory of that. Same thing in part two. When, when, when Henry turns to Westmoreland and says, 
You remember what Richard said about Northumberland being the ladder by which my cousin Bolingbroke ascends yeah. the throne? Having a memory of David Ivers saying that and being in the presence of that speech. Um, it's just... And, and working on it as much as we have, as much as I have, and still just barely grasping the surface of what, of the capacity that Shakespeare had for telling this story to the, to, to the depth and eloquence with which he did. It's a, it's a, it's a miracle. It really is a miracle of, of language and uh, poetry and character and storytelling. And to be, and to have dipped my toes in it to any degree, I think, is, uh, is really a, a, a treasure. Yeah, it feels, I remember uh, the, in part one, the, the tavern scene that's like 15 minutes long. Um, it just felt like this onion that we, there were so many layers that each time you would, you would, it would go further down um, and you discover something new or an, another complexity. I, I mean, I just think it's one of the most beautiful scenes. People say that it's, you know, the greatest scene Shakespeare ever wrote, but it's so fun to play. <laughs> Because it's so many different things in the room at the same time, and you have these characters working these issues out with each other in a fun way, play acting themselves out. It's just and, it was, that, and that dark revelation that happens. Yeah, and then getting with Falstaff to, playing says, "Don't banish not don't yeah banish not poor Jack." Yeah, and Hal's response to that was just a party ender. You know, yeah. it's just <laughs> talking about popping the balloon, you know, which Falstaff, of course, recovers from. Yeah, I do, I will. Um, but, yeah, I just think it's, yeah, it's a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun, and I think they're both such beautiful plays. Um, and knowing that they lead up to Henry V, I think, is so exciting. Um, yeah. I think there's also a lot of really cool things that track throughout the plays, just... Um, Obviously, characters like we've talked about, but also certain objects take on certain meanings. and Like what? Well, I just remember, uh, I mean, the tavern crown. has, the, cra- the crown, <laughs> the tavern has such a feel to it. The tankards, the, the, the jugs, um, the clothing. Um, uh, and we've added this, this um, ring that the yeah. king, the king wears throughout the plays. Um, you had in part one too, right? Part one as well, right? Yeah. Yeah, and... Uh, uh, how uh, how wears it after he becomes king, um, and it's it's such a knowing that Larry wore that ring for the plays, and then putting the ring on, um, and it being sort of a subtle personal thing that you won't probably track in the audience, but that we get to endow, um, yeah, is is really cool, and it has uh, a lot of meaning because we've done both of these shows together. Oh, wonderful. All right. Well, thank you guys for coming in. I really appreciate having you join us today. Thank yeah, you very to. much. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Play On podcast. Be sure to go back and listen to past interviews on the festival webpage. Check out the latest episode released every Friday with your favorite directors, actors, and designers from our 2015 season. 